Well, happy Father's Day. Thank you. And um, uh, for my brothers and sisters who are celebrating Juneteenth today, I celebrate with you and um, continue to stand with you in the call for justice. Today we're going to look at the subject of purpose. How do you maintain purpose? How do you gain purpose? How do you establish purpose in the midst of difficulty? We have, of course, been looking at Paul in the narrative that describes his period of incarceration. He's in prison in Caesarea. The city itself is a stunning jewel of the Mediterranean. But my guess is that even with the level of liberty that he was allowed, he still really didn't want to be there. And the levels of privation, I'm sure, meant that he struggled to think through what his purpose might be in the midst of this circumstance. And of course, Jesus had come to him, as we've looked in previous weeks, to tell him to take courage, that he would go from Jerusalem, where he bore witness, to Rome to share the good news of Jesus. And so, in the midst of that, in the valley of his imprisonment, what was it like for Paul to maintain purpose? Where did he get that perspective from? That's what we're going to look at today, and it's a hugely important subject because most people that I encounter are looking for purpose because of the reality of need. They're looking for purpose through the influence of others. They're looking for purpose through the matrix, the network of, of relationships in their life that help them to understand who they are and what they were made for. But there is a way in which we can find purpose that will put us on a higher plane, that will establish a deeper foundation, and will hold us through the storms of life. And that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to read to you Luke's account of the time when King Agrippa and his consort, Bernice, who happened to be his sister, came to look at the case of Paul. We're going to see here in Acts 25, verse 13, how Luke presents the case for Paul's defense. Verse 13, a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests, the elders of the Jews, brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he faces his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. 
When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss as to how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear this man for myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus says, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man, the whole Jewish community, has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death. But because he made his appeal to emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may be able to have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Luke is spending oops, Daisy, uh, Luke is spending a great deal of time detailing the, the court appearances, Paul's appeal, the defense, and the charges brought against him. The reason for that is that Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus appears to be a person of noble origin, perhaps well-placed within the emperor's household. We're not sure about who he is, but certainly history and tradition would suggest that here is a man with influence. And so as to give Theophilus a full reading of what it is that Paul is going to face before the emperor, he gives him the full story, the story of Jesus and how the religious elite come against him and finally kill him, and then reveals how the same Jewish elite come against Paul and then detail the charges that are brought against him in Caesarea before he appears in Rome. We really don't know the things that prompted the mind of Luke to do this amazing job of writing the gospel and the Acts of the Apostles. But maybe in his ordinary life as a doctor and a historian, he decided that the best contribution that he could make was to detail how vaporous and irrelevant the charges were that were being brought against Paul, so that when Paul came before the emperor, there would be a full reckoning of the charges brought against him that were clearly without merit, and Paul himself, who would be able to commend himself by his character and his condition. So maybe that was the thing that prompted Luke, and the Holy Spirit chose to, as it were, fill that interest, that capacity 
that desire and turn it into scripture for us. We don't know, but certainly it does seem as though one of the things that Luke was trying to do was to prepare documents for Paul's defense. And when you read what it is that we've just read here, you ask yourself this simple question. Can good things come from bad people? King Agrippa, the great-grandson of Herod the Great, is an ordinary kind of corrupt ruler. He fancied the idea of living with his sister, and so he did. And um, here they are, being the ones to offer insight into Paul's case. Festus, like Felix, is just as corrupt as many other Roman authorities. And they're going to send him to Nero. Everyone's heard of Nero. Within 10 or 15 years, Nero's madness would become evident to all. He would commit suicide, but only after bringing a terrible persecution against the Christians, whom he publicly blamed for the burning of Rome, that he probably did himself so as to make space for his new palace. These are not very nice people. And you think to yourself, how is it possible that Paul can maintain a sense of gravity and purpose, rootedness and perspective in the midst of such company? Paul himself has already written to the Roman church in Romans chapter 13 that they should respect their rulers, even Nero. They should submit to their rulers, even Nero. And as far as they were able within the civil law and the bounds of that law being offered, they should obey. So how, how does Paul do it? How does Paul maintain his purpose and perspective? Well, during this period of imprisonment, Caesarea and Rome probably more in Rome than here in Caesarea, because obviously he's got things on his mind in Caesarea. He writes things like this. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So here's a, here's a secret, here's a clue as to what it is that Paul thinks is important and relevant. We have something of an idea of how he gains the right perspective. Look what he says here. That was Colossians 3 verse 1. Look here, some words that he's written previously. He says this, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Paul feels the extremity, the difficulty, the nakedness 
of his situation. And like others, as we looked at last week, he groans with creation for the revelation of the new world. And that's where his focus is found. God has a purpose for you. You may not have found your purpose. You may have accidentally stumbled over it from time to time and wondered what that strange feeling of, of significance and certitude was that you, that you experienced during those times, but then you lost it again, like chasing the soap in the bathtub. It seems to slip from your fingers. How do you find purpose? The purpose that God designed and made you for. This is not a question just for young people. This is for older people. This is for all of us. Because all of us are in the business of wanting and looking and longing for a sense of significance. Of course, security is important. Of course, a sense of stability is important. I've never met anyone who doesn't want to have some sense of significance in their life. Significance comes from purpose. Purpose comes from God. And that means that you and I need to invest in the vertical perspective so that we can have an effect in our horizontal purpose. The vertical perspective defines our horizontal purpose. Of course, our purpose is going to be seen and expressed in the lives that our life touches. Our purpose, of course, is going to be something that we can identify, something that we can observe, something that we can get data about. But if you try to find your purpose in the horizontal, it will always slip your grasp. If, however, you discover your purpose in the vertical, it will transform your life in the horizontal. Now, this is not just Paul. Paul is blessed with a remarkable mind, a great spirit, an intellect that is perhaps among the greatest of all those who contributed to the writing of the Bible. But Paul doesn't rely on such things. He looks to the unseen world. And he's not alone. Think of Abraham. Abraham is wondering whether all that he has chosen to do in leaving his homeland and journeying to a foreign and distant place is really worthwhile. He's now coming to the latter years of his life and he's wondering what it's all been about. He's ruminating and he's, he's inviting God into the conversation. What is it that's going to be what is it that's going to be the, the legacy of my life? What am I going to leave behind? And who am I going to leave it to? Is it one of the servants? That guy from Damascus who's hanging around as my butler? Or is it somebody else? God invites him to change his perspective. 
Step outside, Abraham. Now, if somebody bigger than you invites you to step outside, you generally think twice about it. But of course, he knew God from days of old, so he steps outside. Look up, says God. Look up. Consider the starry host. I can remember one time that we were on a dad and lad trip. We were in uh, Arizona, Sam and I, and um, we, um, we borrowed a trailer with a, with a couple of um, four-by-fours in it. We slept on the, on the trailer ramp, waiting for the dawn in the desert. But in the desert, even in the Arizona desert, now sadly affected by pollution and the light from many city streetlights, you looked up and it was astonishing to see. Like a river of light through the sky was the Milky Way. Impossible to count. God says, count them. Count them if you can. Now, within the cosmology of of Abraham and of the ancient world, right up until the time of Paul, the stars in the heavens were understood to be heavenly beings. Amongst the polytheists, they were seen to be the many gods of the Greek and Roman pantheon. In the minds of the monotheists, the Jews, the stars were the household of heaven, the angels, whom God knew by name. Change your perspective, says God. Look up. And in that moment of looking up, Abraham's heart was opened to a new perspective. And his purpose was strangely clarified. Moses, 40 years on the run, 40 years living in a foreign country because he was known as a murderer back in his hometown. 40 years looking after the sheep of his father-in-law. 40 years living in the desert. Change your perspective, says God to Moses. Moses, there in Exodus 3, by the way, if you want to read the story of Abraham that I've just expressed to you, it's Genesis 15. Exodus 3, here is Moses, and he, he decides to go to the far side of the desert. It's almost as though he's saying, this is where I live now. This, this around me, this, this difficulty, this place of perseverance, this place 
is the place that I fully embrace. I'm not just going to nibble at the edges. I'm going to go to the far side of the desert. This is my place now. And on his way, of course, he comes to the mountain of God. And there, in the foothills, he sees something that he can't understand. Something that opens his eyes to the unseen world. Focus on the unseen world, says Paul. What is this, says Moses? A bush that's on fire, and yet the bush is not being consumed. There's flames all around it, but the flames don't seem to be doing the same thing that flames normally do. Is there a fire that can be present that does not consume? Of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would know flames that did not consume. Well, in fact, they did consume, but they only consumed the things that held them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow before the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. Many years after Moses, they discovered flames that would not consume them, but would release them. They were, they were thrown hand and foot, tied hand and foot, into the fiery furnace. The penalty for not bowing to the idol of the king. And as they're thrown into the furnace, the flames are so hot that they consume the guards that threw them in. And when Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace, he doesn't see them bound hand and foot being consumed by the flames of the furnace. He sees them walking around with one who is like a son of God. Moses is taken into another world. Moses is taken to observe something that can't be seen with natural sight. What is this? God speaks to him, tells him of the holiness of this moment in his life. And from the new perspective, gives him a purpose at the age of 80 that will change the world forever. It doesn't matter how old you are today. God can achieve in a single day what it would take humanity a thousand years to perform. Because once we're in the flow of his purpose, then God is able to use us as the conduit of his grace and blessing. Mary. What about Mary? Mary would fall pregnant. Mary would seek the counsel of trusted friends and family. But the trusted friends and family 
would only support her in the purpose that was given to her by God himself. Blessed are you, Mary amongst women. You're going to conceive and bear a son and you'll name him Jesus because he's the savior of the world. And of course, like us, she looks for the succor and support of people around her, but it's the support of what God has already revealed. Her purpose is is defined by God, not by the people or the circumstances. The vertical defines the horizontal. The vertical perspective changes the horizontal purpose. What have you been designed to do? You don't know? Ask God. Ask God. Paul says, set your minds on things above. You say, well, I'm not very good at that. Well, I don't think any of us are. But when the scriptures make it a clear command, it's because it's possible for us to embrace the call. You say, well, I've I've never heard God speak to me. Well, wait, press in. Learn what it means to hear the voice of God beyond the testimonies and experiences of others. He can speak to you through your emotions. He can speak to you through your feelings. He can speak to you through your amazing mind that's able to put together stories and pictures and visions. He can speak to you through dreams. He can speak to you through others, through nature, through children. God can speak to you. He's in the business of speaking to you. That's when That's why when he sent his son, he called him the Word. Because when he wanted his son to represent him, he wanted him to represent what it was that he longed to do in the life of every person, and that is to speak. God has a word for you. And if you've not heard it, it's not because he doesn't want to speak. It's because you haven't heard it. I was in the temple, says Isaiah, and I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Was he expecting it? No. He was grieving for the king that had died. He was there to worship with others and wonder what the future might hold in the midst of all of the world that seems to be conspiring to crush the life out of Israel. A world similar to the one that we're in, full of anxiety and panic and inflation and disturbance. And in his moment of worship, and there's a clue there, in his moment of worship, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. His perspective is changed. Yes, the circumstances are dire. Yes, the place that he's in is oppressive and struggling. But there is a perspective that can change all of that. 
I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and there were angels singing holy, holy, holy. And then God spoke. I've got a job for someone. Who can I give that task to? Could it be the task of parenthood? No higher calling. Could it be the task of fatherhood, motherhood? Could it be the task of being a friend to the friendless? Could it be the task of reaching out to the lonely and to the least? As I didn't know. But the task would be the task that God wanted to fulfill in him so that others could hear him. And so worship would become witness. Who shall I send, says the Lord. Isaiah says, me, send me. So, what is it that Mary knows? What is it that Abraham knows? What is it that Moses knows? What is it that Isaiah knows? Let me read to you a portion of Isaiah's prophecy. Just listen. Just let the rhythm of the prophecy capture your heart and mind. Maybe close your, mind, close your eyes. Maybe kind of disconnect from the other stuff that's going on around you. I'm going to read from Isaiah 40, verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. 
Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who wait, those who wait, Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Anybody get it? We talked about it before. I even thought about it today when Chad was sharing with us the gift of turkey jerky. Thomas Jefferson thought that the turkey ought to be the national bird. He wasn't as smart as everybody thought he was, obviously. Because he didn't realize that when turkeys look up on a rainy day with open-mouthed wonder, they can drown. Turkeys are a noble creature, but they're not usually used in the Bible as a symbol of soaring faith. Don't be a turkey, confined to the earth, flapping furiously so that maybe you can get away from one of the predators. Don't be a chicken, it's the same as a turkey but a little smaller. Be an eagle. You see, you are eagles, but for one reason or another, so many of us never get to live that life. So often we see eagles as singular, lonely creatures. I've been to Alaska, again, a dads and lads trip. We went to fish for salmon that didn't appear, so we went to do other stuff. We went to a great promontory of land where all kinds of stuff. I've never seen bald eagles in a flock. There may have been 50 of them. They were all hanging out, having a great time. But the nobility of their flight was stunning.
their spread fingers, their still wings, soaring on the thermals. Not the swept back look of the falcon for them. No, they're just hanging here, looking for what it is that they should do next. I'm going to show you a video of a bald eagle. I'd love for you to watch it and then get ready for the noble scene of the Rockies in the background. Maybe you'll hear the tune, glad that I'm an American. These things have their own theme tune, don't they? Watch carefully. Rockies will come into view any minute. Wait. What? Oh. Is that the Miami River? Oh. Are those electric pylons in the background? Is that me in that car? God needs eagles everywhere. Right here in Dayton. Your horizontal purpose will be changed by the vertical perspective of coming into the expected presence of God, where you worship Him, where you learn to walk with others, and where in that moment that your heart is drawn upwards, you find your purpose and your place of witness. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. People with a purpose change the world. And if you don't feel like you've found it, then what should you do? You should wait. And what does it mean to wait? Does it mean to agonize over a long period of time for something that may or may not arrive? Waiting for a bus in Dayton? No, the word to wait in the Old and New Testament is a similar word to hope. And hope and waiting are things that we do because there is a certainty of its arrival. God would not ask you to look up 
if there's nothing to see. God would not ask you to set your minds on things above where Christ is seated if you can't do it. God would not say to you to wait so that you are carried on wings like an eagle and that your new perspective gives you the purpose of your life if it can't happen for you. And maybe you're at one of those moments in life where you say, well, I think I knew what my purpose was up to this point. I just don't know how it works now. Well, wait. Maybe you're a person who's been hearing the advice and the input of others and you're all confused. What is your purpose? Well, wait. Maybe you're one of those who looks at your life and wonders whether there will be a significant contribution. Well, wait. And do it now. Don't wait any longer. Leanne, one of the people that regularly meets in the mornings to pray at 8.30 online currently will be back again in person with the start of the new academic year. She came forward last week. We were talking, remember, about the Holy Spirit giving you hope. She came in faith, but she came burdened by a whole bunch of things that she shared with us. And she said, last week, something happened that had never happened before. God touched her in such a way that it's continued on through every day of challenge and difficulty and has brought her peace. You don't receive because you don't ask, says James. It's very simple. You don't receive because you don't ask. If you want wings like an eagle, ask for it. If you want purpose that changes the lives of the people, ask for it. If you want significance that far outstrips anything that's offered you in this interlocking world of words, ask for it. And if you'll wait, you will rise up on wings like eels. You'll run and not be weary. You'll be one of the ones that continue every day. Let's pray.